Hawks fans, wherever you may be. Welcome inside the Hawks Playbook Podcast. Join your host, Bill Alpstead, and featuring 12thManRising.com editor and football analyst, Keith Myers. Hey guys, it's the Hawks Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Alpstead. I am here with Keith Myers. Hello, Keith. Oh, having a good, uh, nice sunny summer day, are you? It's it's actually turned into summer. I like it. It's uh, it's perfect weather this week. It's like mid eighties. It's Fourth of July weekend coming up. Got the Blues Festival in downtown Portland. Uh, there's lots of stuff going on in Seattle. Everyone's outside. Couldn't be better. But there's no Seahawks football going on because it's it's really the heart and soul of the uh, the dreads of the off season right now. Yeah, you said it couldn't be better. And the truth is it could be better. There could be Seahawks football going on right now. <laughs> well, that's why we're here though. We're giving fans just a little taste of uh, Seahawks football. So you stay just, just get connected enough to make it to training camp in a month. So, so today's podcast is going to be about uh, Seahawks coaches uh, and focusing on that. And and the really cool thing is I really haven't seen anybody else out there uh, writing or talking about uh, the coaches. Um, and there's quite a bit to talk about. Uh, the Seahawks actually have 26 coaches, believe it or not. I didn't believe it before I, I did the research on it. I thought we had a little over uh, half of that. And so I was a little surprised uh, that we have 26 um, we can talk uh, a little bit about the history of uh, Seahawks head coaches and dive into that a little bit. And um, we'll kind of run down the coaches and uh, talk about what they bring to the team, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, with regards to some of them. Um, and if you, if you, uh, so it should be a good show. The, if you look at the pictures on the website, there's a lot of ugly on the Seahawks uh, coaching staff. So no, that's uh, <laughs> I, I was speaking figuratively. Come on, uh, yeah, you're right. No, though. you're and right. I'm I, I'm just joking. There, this is actually a really good coaching staff. This is a a good group of guys teaching our players. So um, I'm actually it's really a championship happy with the, caliber coaching yeah. staff. I'm happy with I mean, the staff it, that Pete Carroll has assembled for this season, but just also just in general since he's come in, he's actually done a very good job of of putting together multiple coaching staffs because we've lost a lot of coaches um since 2012 you know a lot of guys have have left um to take other jobs and he pete carroll continues to bring in quality guys uh, well and we've had a we've had a consistency that uh, any other club in the nfl would envy absolutely yeah so normally, before we start the featured segment, we would have this week in the news, and there's really nothing to report, which is both good and bad. The good is our players are staying out of trouble, but the bad is um, there's really nothing to talk about uh, in the in the way of actual news. If you go online and you're looking for uh, Seahawks stories, there's all sorts of uh, speculative stuff and, and made-up articles to kind of keep everybody uh, connected uh, but there's really no news uh, out of camp. Uh, camp uh, mini camp broke, um, so all the players kind of went off on their own uh, this last week and won't return until the last week of July when training camp officially begins. Um, and so uh, we'll have our uh, share of shows uh, coming up. What are our uh, upcoming shows looking like, Keith? 
we got some good ones. We've got some good ones. We've got um, a show coming up where we are going to uh, get together and try some homebrew and talk about tailgating and a little bit about our expectations for this coming season. And that ought to be entertaining because our listeners will get to um, watch us proceed down the road of drinking. Uh, (laughs) Or not watch, but but listen to the the results of that. and if we're we, not already loose with our with our talking, Keith, oh, we might be then. Yeah, that's going to really open us up. <laughs> it'll be a, it'll be a great show. It'll be a fun show. That'll um, be a fun we'll, show. We'll I'm, try I'm looking to forward main, to that one. Yeah, we'll try to maintain control, but it'll be good because I'll get to try Keith's beers, and you know, it'll be it'll be uh, it'll be awesome because Keith is going to join me in my home studio. Uh, for the first time, we we record remotely, but we're going to get together for the first time and record together in the same room and, and try some beers, and that's going to be a, a really fun podcast. Um, yeah, and the expectations part will be interesting because uh, I think the expectations will keep growing throughout the the episode, and uh, well, who the more, knows where we'll get to. <laughs> the more the more we consume, the higher our expectations get. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be fun. Um, it's funny. Inversely, well, yeah. Oh. No, hold on. In, inversely, though, you know, if you go out into a bar, the expectations typically go down a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we won't That's go there. That's true. No. We won't go there. Um, <laughs> so what? What else? The other one we, say, we were hoping to get got, some guests. We've also on. got a, a couple of guests that we're yeah. we're trying to get um, on our show. We've got a um, an actual NFL referee that we're. Um, we're we're looking to get to join us. I've got um, someone who is an injury expert to come on and talk about Seahawks injuries before camp. That if we can get them on, we're going to do. Uh, we've got a training camp preview coming up, um, and that's all just in the month of July. So that's pretty that's all just full month. Yeah. yeah. I also got a, I got a trip to the beach planned. Going to celebrate my wedding anniversary. It's a it's a busy month. That's great. I'm going to see <laughs> Brit. I'm going to see. Uh, in J- July, so I'm going to see Brit Floyd, which is a which is the premier Pink Floyd cover band, if you will, and they do an amazing job. So I'm looking forward to those guys. I'm taking my 11 year old because he's an absolute fan, and because uh, he's been before with me, and he wanted to go again. So we are going. And only this time, last time we had kind of nosebleed seats, and this time we're in the fifth row. Nice. So it's it's going to be sweet. And nice. then in uh, in August, I'm going to Metallica. With okay, that's even the, better. <laughs> yeah, with the same with the same boy, and we're doing it at uh, CenturyLink in Seattle. So that's cool. going to be uh, an amazing, amazing show. I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, that's kind of my summer in a nutshell. Don't have anything else planned. Kind of sticking around the house. I've done my fair share of traveling already. Now I'm I'm kind of sticking close to home. Yeah, so, once once August gets here, life gets busy for me because training camp starts, and um, so I got to cover that and get back to work and writing, and uh, yeah, I have to work again. And then the season starts, and I just never have free time until February. So yeah, you know, and as we get is. going in this in the season with the podcast, we'll have uh, you know weekly uh, game reviews and all that good stuff. So that'll actually get really interesting, really fun yep. for us. So this week we're talking about coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we might as well start at the top. We've got uh, Pete Carroll joined the team in 2010. Um, 
arguably already the best coach in Seahawks history, even though he's got a few less games than Mike Holmgren uh, had. Um, he's almost on par with uh, where Chuck Knox is as far as total games, uh, but he's still uh, a little behind that. Uh, kind of on par, kind of where Jack Patera was. Um, what do you think? It's just an overall statement about uh, where you were the day Pete Carroll was hired and where you are today. So when they hired Pete Carroll, I was I, I thought it was a mistake. Like, I mean, okay, it was a home run hire, go get a big name. You know, this was the guy who won all those national titles at USC and was the guy. He had NFL experience, so you knew he what he was signing on to. Um, but I looked at his NFL experience and saw a guy that took over a very good team in New England and then had it erode out from under him. He spent one year in New York, um, before an ownership change pushed him out. Um, and I saw... Yeah, those guy, were less than ideal situations for Pete yeah. now, in retrospect. But back yes. then, you but didn't back, really know if it was Pete's issue or if it was a team issue. Yeah, it was one of those things where we didn't learn about those situations and the, the intricate details of them until a little bit later. So at the moment he was hired, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm like, this feels like one of those situations, more like kind of like Dennis Erickson when they when the Seahawks hired him. And he'll come in, he'll be yeah, mediocre. Yeah, that's a fair comparison. Yeah. Um, he'll come in, he'll be mediocre. Like There'll be a lot of excitement, which is great, but then the results won't be there. And well, how did how did Husky fans feel about Pete Carroll? I mean, oh, they hated most him. yeah, most of those guys did not uh, hold back um, mm-hmm. and, and were against this thing. But and you know, say what you want about Pete, but he had a very successful run at USC, turned that program around, um, yep. a couple of national championships there, lots of lots of All American players. He was a master recruiter, um, probably the best. I. I you know, personally, uh, taking the, the Homer glasses off, probably one of the best recruiters in college football uh, that that has ever been in the game. Um, there's, a, there's a few, but he's mm-hmm. definitely up there in that conversation. And he comes to Seattle after a lot of success, but after the Reggie Bush thing uh, in USC, a lot of people felt like he left there um, with some unfinished business and he was kind of pushed out a little bit. Um so there was a little bit of that. But the moment he came, I thought it was a great hire right away. I thought, you know what, this guy has got a great football mind. He's got proven success. Um, they're giving him uh, all the control that I think that he needs. It's either going to be um, do or die for Pete because of the way that it was structured. He took over uh, like president of football operations. And so he had a lot of control. And they paired him with John Schneider, which was at the time, I didn't get it, um, and I was like, who's John Schneider? And then uh, the, the first year happened, and they had 200-plus transactions, and it was just crazy. But I could tell immediately, though, that he was rebuilding that team into his image. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was it's turned out to be amazing. Um, but at the time, I, I also thought it was really something special. Um, and it was just unfolding, you know, and, and that first year was, uh, by the end of that season, you could tell there was something special. 
going on. Yeah, because that team that team went seven and nine. They lost every game that they lost. They lost by double digits. I mean, this was a team that that's right. That was it. Was not a good football team, uh, but they those the what was it two hundred and forty six roster moves uh, over that year because they were churning the roster. They were getting rid of all these little unathletic guys that um, Tim Ruskell had brought in and they were bringing yep. in athletes and trying to make the team bigger, stronger, faster. And uh, they were doing that, you know, as players would come available, they'd bring them in, they'd, they'd let work them out. If they stuck, then they would cut someone else. If they didn't stick, if it wasn't going to work, they'd, they jettisoned them fairly quickly. Uh, they changed the culture and you could kind of see it starting to do its thing at the end of the year, you know, once they kind of got Marshawn Lynch and that attitude and the, the power running and all of that going, uh, and then you had the, you know, the uh, Beastquake game at the end of the year. They won a playoff yeah. game. They beat, yeah, that that they, literally changed the course of the franchise. If you yeah. really stop and think about it, that was the moment that the Seahawks got their identity. Yeah, because they went from... Uh, you know they went, they went from this team that was this like super finesse, soft, homegrown, soft, soft. Jim yeah. Mora, Jim Mora uh, was soft. Surprisingly, Jim Mora's an asshole. Yeah. I mean, excuse my French, but <laughs> but he ended up being soft on the way that he coached that team. Well, and it wasn't just him. I mean, it was, um, it was also Tim Ruskell and the guys he brought in. I mean, this, they were all undersized. Uh, guys, yep. not particularly athletic, but they were "quote unquote" football players, and right. you didn't. Our listeners didn't see the air quotes there, but they were there. Uh, <laughs> um, and and that wasn't the team that Pete Carroll wanted. He didn't. He knew you couldn't win a title that way. You had to have. You had to be strong up front. You had to, you know, be athletic. You had to be bigger. You had to be able to you know, push people around. And so that's what yeah, they did. Yeah, they yeah you had to out physical teams. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so that's what, what he did. And you're right about that Beastquake game because they went from, I mean, the, the identity of Seattle was born in that game. They, well, the, and they the, snuck into the playoffs, highly mm-hmm. ridiculed teams, first seven and nine team to make the playoffs. Yep. One that, you know, got in it, it, by the skin of their teeth, which was, and and the player and the and the team was happy because they didn't have any expectations. Us fans were happy to be in a playoff game because we didn't have any expectations. It happened to be at home, which was crazy for that record. Well, especially and, because they were they were playing against the defending Super Bowl champions. And playing still. against yeah, New Orleans and and uh, the game was in question and, until that that play. I mm-hmm. mean, we were ahead, but we were only ahead by the skin of our teeth. And if we had to punt for some reason. There the was, game was over. <laughs> there was <laughs> zero expectations that yeah. we were going to be able to hold Drew Brees out of the end zone. Mm-hmm. And then Beastquake happened. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was nuts. That was yeah. the the thing. That was the one of my favorite plays in franchise history. Absolutely. I mean, it was yeah. it was it was just crazy. And it's just one of those things where you go. I can rewatch that play. Over and over and over again. <laughs> it's Even funny. now, it's just yeah. phenomenal. And yeah. one of the things that I that I saw was that um, someone put together a video. I think it was someone at the NFL Network uh, put together a video, and it was of players in other stadiums because it was a playoff game. So there was only like, there was there was, there was um, 
you know, not all the teams are, but they're when when the highlight would come on and they show players watching it and reacting, and a lot of them were like, <laughs> "Oh my god, what? what? Did, did he really do that? What? what? Oh!" And, and he's watching, yeah. oh, and he's watching these, all of yeah. these reactions, and it's just, I mean, these are players; these are guys that they've been doing playing this game their whole life. They're at the top of their game, and they were just absolutely amazed. At yep. what Marshawn did. So that, yep. well, and that run later was voted as the best run in mm-hmm. uh, the NFL that year, and I think one of the the either the best run or you know top two runs in all of playoff history. Yeah, like in history. Yes. So that was that was crazy. So you know, just to give you some comparison, so Chuck Knox uh, was the Seahawks coach from '83 to '91. And had 143 total games with a winning loss record of 80 and 63. Then you move to Mike Holmgren and uh, coached from 99 to 2008, 160 total games. Um, <clears throat> he's coached the most games as a single coach uh, in Seahawks history, 160 games. He had a, a win loss record of 86 and 74. And then Pete Carroll, 112 games. Already has uh, 70 wins, 41 losses, and he's eight and four in the playoffs. Pete Carroll is is slowly but surely, you know, standing alone on his own island as as the best coach in Seahawks history. Well, he's the only one to bring a Super Bowl um, championship. Uh, Holmgren's the only other one to get us there, uh, but this is the Pete, Pete's got us there twice, one one. Yes. Um, but the other thing you look at is the Seahawks had never had back-to-back 10-win seasons uh, before Pete Carroll, and now they've got five straight years yep. of uh, at least yep. 10 wins. Um, and not only that, but in those same five years, they went. They have won at least one playoff game in each of those five years. So they've not just made the playoffs, but advanced in the playoffs. And I think that string included a patch of games where they, I think they went close to a hundred games without losing by more than 10 points. Yeah. They, Double, yep. Which, which is, which is crazy. I mean, that's, that's nuts. That's that, going to stand for a while. Yeah. Cause that's not only an NFL record, but it's an NFL record by a mile. Um, and, yeah, because like, I think the other closest one was like fifty-two or something like that. Yeah, and that's and that's in history. At the time, at the yeah. t- at the time that it was broken, I think it was at the they were at the CX were at eighty-nine games where oh, they okay. had not where they had not lost by um, by fourteen points or more. Or no, yeah, was that was it fourteen or ten? I think it was ten, Keith. Maybe because they had gone yeah. a long time with seven. Yeah, seven points, and then that San then Diego game. 10. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So it was. It was. It was like. But it was like eighty nine games where they had not lost by double digits, and the second best current streak at that was like eleven. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean that was, and that was, and that had been New New England was was there. There right. was eleven. So. Right. And you'd think the Patriots would be up on that list a little bit, but you know but the consistency not. level it takes in the NFL to be that dominant over that long of a period of time is astronomical. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that and that ties directly into what we're going to talk about today is the coaches and the philosophy of Pete Carroll is he designs games to be close and to then win those games in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Um what he's doing there, okay, so this this comes down to um 
It comes down to philosophy. Now, the reason why he designs them to be close is because he built this team around defense. And the goal is to limit the number of opportunities that the other team has because then you limit the uh, variance is, is right. the, the, the statistical word. Because if you give them a ton of opportunities, eventually someone will fall down and they'll end up with a big play and whatever. But if you give them a short, a small amount of, of opportunities, then the probability of one of those high variance right. plays is going to be really small. So ball control offense. Yep. And a dominant run-stuffing defense. Yep. So, so that works because they're a defense team. Now, if you're an offense, if you're a built-around offense, you want the opposite effect. You 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 do what the the Patriots do, and you speed it up. You go super fast. You try and get as many possessions in a game as you can. Because sure, the other team might you know the variance ability is that they might stop you occasionally, but they're not going to stop gonna you over them. and over and over again. Right. And they're not going to be able to keep up with you. So. You, in reality, it's 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 smart strategic football. If you're built around offense, you go super fast. If you're built around defense, you go super slow um, and slow it down. And all these teams that are still right in the middle of the pack, and you know the whole the whole normal distribution bell curve thing, just haven't figured that out yet. Right, and those are the teams that go six and ten. Seven and nine. nine every year, year in, year out. And we were there. We know full well what that feels like as a franchise. We were there in a number of years. Jack Patera's years, uh, Tom Flores, Dennis Erickson, uh, some of Mike Holmgren's years, uh, Jim Mora, obviously. Those those teams were kind of designed that way. Now, Mike, uh, to his credit, um, wanted to build a, a decent defense. I just don't think that he really knew how. He didn't. And uh, the offense was his game. And but he didn't quite have a, a shootout offense either, mm-hmm. and so he kind of got stuck getting close, um, but not quite over the hump until 2005 with yeah. with us. Now he did it a couple times in Green Bay, but uh, he had Brett Favre. He also had um, uh, Wolf there as his general manager to yeah, help build and that he, defense, and he had White on defense too. Yep, which the you know he never had. He never had. He was he was the general manager in Seattle for the first part and could not build a right. defense. That's right. And then he got fired from that half of his job, and the defense yeah. got better. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, you want to put Mike on a pedestal, and that's fine because he was an excellent coach, but he did have a lot of shortcomings, and that's why I think Pete Carroll jumps him um, in the coaching category pretty easily, um, just in an all around coach yeah the big difference i mean because both of them had football czar control they they controlled everything they hired like uh pete carroll hired his general manager he is uh john snyder's boss not the other way around uh the difference is that pete carroll was smart enough to be like okay i'm gonna hire someone and i'm gonna let them do their job and they have a like a synergistic relationship where they work together very well and Holmgren wanted that control. He wanted to be the guy. And so he never hired a GM. He was the GM and it never really worked. So, and that's, it's, that's really what's different. And what you, when you see teams now uh, have that coach and go that direction, they're mostly going in the direction where Pete Carroll and the Seahawks went with hiring a general manager even though you're giving the coach all that control you're hiring a general manager to work with the coach um even if they're working 
officially under the coach. Um, so talk about um, talk about Atlanta specifically, and talk about what you're seeing emerge in San Francisco um, that ties into Pete Carroll. Well, Atlanta is so. Um, Atlanta, for those of you who are forgetful, uh, that's uh, Dan Quinn's team. He was Seattle's defensive coordinator. He's gone down there and and done extremely well. Uh, they, as a, he, you know, this is a first time head coach. He was able to, um, because he was really highly sought after. He was able to get some control over. And the he roster. had some talent coming in. Yeah, they were already a talented bunch. Yes. Um, but he doesn't have the. He doesn't have the control over the draft and that kind of stuff he's got right. he's got not only a general manager but also um, an f- owner that's prominent yeah and, and they and they brought in a former general manager who is uh there as an assistant which yep. i thought which which is pretty rare because you tend to not take teams tend not to do that because you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen and, and you get people getting pulled the wrong way but they've worked really well together they've got a fantastic um ability to uh, evaluate talent there, but they've also done a really good job of integrating um, Quinn and the coaching staff into the scouting and making sure that everything's working as this big cohesive unit. Um, Do you think, Keith, that they uh, that staff there originally when they hired Quinn thought that he would be this successful this soon? Yes, they did. That's you know that's interesting to me, and that's and that points well. It's Quinn has to be able to stand on his own two feet there. He earned that. He, he, he also came into the Seahawks organization and uh, and created his own stamp on our on our defense. Mm-hmm. I thought that was better than what we had before. And I'm, I'm for the life of me, I can't remember the other coach's name that we Gus that Bradley. Was in there. Gus Bradley. So yeah, so Gus know. Gus Bradley actually joined the Seahawks under Jim Mora, and he was the one who moved uh, Red Bryant to defensive end. And developed some of what uh, became people thought of as the Seattle defensive front when Pete Carroll came in. Uh, a lot of that was Gus Bradley's doing. Bradley went to Jacksonville as their coach. Dan they brought Dan Quinn back, who was the uh, defensive line coach, line coach. Uh, under um, under Bradley. And then he left for a year and was the defensive coordinator in Miami. Came back to Seattle as the defensive coordinator, and yep. he w- he was the guy who engineered. The, the current version of the defense with yeah. Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill instead of Red Bryant and Chris Clemens as the defensive ends and really changed the front and the 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 scheme as far as how the the Seahawks attack defensively and are, and are a little less passive and Chris Richard of course has, has taken that and evolved it a little bit but he's left the front four and really the front seven um, intact in uh, in Dan Quinn's system, so yeah, that it's, and uh, Chris was the defensive backs coach uh, for Seattle during that time. Yeah, so really the defense is almost identical, save personnel changes. It is and it isn't. Um, he's not quite as aggressive. As he's Quinn not as was. aggressive. He doesn't blitz as much. Um, he also calls more. Um, he also gets creative with his coverage a little bit more, which if you'd expect, he's a defensive backs coach and not a defensive line coach. So he, he does get, uh, Chris Richard's more creative with the, with his coverage, which generates some good parts. And then you see other parts where you have, um, Cliff Averill in coverage on Rob Gronkowski in the, 
and that's not a good sign. Uh, so, so the the larger uh, the larger question was so uh, when you take a look at Quinn in um, in Atlanta, and you take mm-hmm. a look at what Lynch is doing in um, San Francisco, it really does mirror what Pete Carroll created here. I know that Quinn was instrumental in doing that defensive stuff, but you know Pete is is kind of the guy. Yeah, that really is is the mastermind. He is, and that's part of the reason why the Seahawks are on their third defensive coordinator in his tenure, and the defense has been, um, you know, it was the number one scoring defense, uh, I think, for four years in a row, and last year they were number one until uh, Earl Thomas got hurt and they finished number three. Um, right. So even with, and that's over three defensive coordinators. And what it comes back to is you've got to remember that, that Pete Carroll was a defensive backs coach, a defensive coordinator. Uh, before he became a head coach, he's a defensive-minded guy. He's got his finger on everything the Seahawks do defensively. Yeah. And so even though those other coaches have their stamp, and, and Pete Carroll is very good about hiring good people and letting them work, he still guides them. And and the the defense is Pete Carroll's defense more than it is Chris Richard's defense. So let's talk about some of the other guys that are on the staff for uh, Seattle. Um, let's let's start with the the guy that's most maligned with Seahawks fans, and Daryl Bevel mm-hmm. uh, came to the Seahawks in 2011. He was previously with Minnesota. He's been successful wherever he's you know been. He was successful with Minnesota during his time there. He was successful with Seattle. He's taken us to two Super Bowls. We have a lot of conference uh, championships. Um, divisional championships under him. We've been in the top half of offensive production while he's been here. What what the heck? What am I missing? Why is he so... Why does everyone want to run him out of town? Because every team, uh, for, for all 32 teams, the offensive coordinator is terrible, according to the fans. And that is true. I mean, just straight up, you won't find a a fan base that likes their offensive coordinator. Maybe New England, um, but even they complain. Uh, and sure. it, it's it, it's part of what it is. It's part of being an NFL fan because you can see play calling. You're like, oh, well, why did you run there? You should have thrown. Or, you know, why did you throw there? You should have ran. And um, people don't understand that all that the play calling happens on Tuesday. It doesn't happen on Sunday. Um, and when I, I say that because what they do is they've looked at all the tape, they've developed the game plan, and the game plan is says that on third and two, uh, if you're between the 20-yard line and the 40-yard line, uh, you're going to run one of these three plays or one of these five plays, and they're going to be in this order. And um, they all that's been predetermined. Uh, so there's not a lot of, when 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 your play calling on a Sunday, it isn't you're just pulling stuff out of a hat and, and that kind of stuff. You are you are following the game plan that was generated as a coaching staff and as a team. And so you when people complain about play calling, it's not Daryl Bevel. It's Pete Carroll and it's Tom Cable and it's Daryl Bevel and it's um Russell Wilson. Russell yeah, I mean it's 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 um it's everybody. Uh, at the time, so talk- it was Sherman Smith, and and so so you've got when, when people complain about play calling, it is, um, it's misplaced. 
uh, anger. And I understand some of the play calling issues because as fans, we have a different perspective. We're back away from it. We can see the whole field, uh, you know, from the camera. We get all the replays. It's different when you're there and you've got all the voices in your head and you're making these split decisions because you have roughly, um, you know, eight seconds to get the play in and that kind of stuff. So you're thinking ahead and, and it's, it's a complicated, it is a very complicated situation. So with Daryl Bevel, here's my take. Uh, Daryl Bevel is the perfect offensive coordinator for Pete Carroll. And that's basically all that matters. Pete Carroll uh, trusts Daryl. Uh, he believes in him and he likes him. And he believes that he's a championship caliber offensive coordinator. And he is. And uh, Daryl Bevel is only as good, however, as the personnel that he's got to work with. And uh, when he's got good offensive personnel, surprisingly, Daryl Bevel calls really good games. And he's uh, better at offensive coordinating uh, than he is not. Um, when Bevel struggles, it uh, usually comes down to play execution, at least for me. Um, but the, the play designs, the play concepts, and the uh, distribution of run versus pass and so forth all uh, point to me in the, in the right direction. Uh, sometimes those plays aren't executed as good as they should be. And uh, more often than not, I think the blame does end up falling to the offensive coordinator for that. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's a little misplaced. But I think overall, Daryl Bevel is the guy that Pete Carroll wants in there because of the, the ball control offense that Pete likes to run, which is, uh, demands that uh, we don't turn the ball over. And so while we do take our shots deep um, and, and the, offensive, uh, the offensive is designed to do that, we're always going to run those plays off of play action, off of uh, the run game. Um, and that's just the way it is. You know? And so those bubble screens and all that kind of stuff, those are all designed to free up those receivers in those key moments in the game to, to, mm -hmm. for Russell Wilson to... Um, to throw the ball down the field, which he's he's got very good accuracy. Now, certain fans want Russell Wilson to throw the ball down the field a lot more than he does, and the offense is just not designed to do that. And our receivers are just not designed to, to be that as well. Yeah, because they don't have um, a Julio Jones uh, or that kind of... Or Beckham or, you know. Yeah, exactly. they, they, don't, they don't have... I mean... Yeah, you look and you go, oh, you got Tyler Lockett, but he, because he's got all the speed in the world, but he's not big. And so you can't just, it's not that uh, where he, you can throw it up and he's going to go get it over a guy if, if the uh, defensive back or the safety makes a play on the ball. Um, you have to set him up and you have to, to give, you have to create situations where uh, that speed that Paul Richardson or, or Tyler Lockett have is yep. best used uh, because they're smaller. And so Bevel does a good job. You, you look at the play designs and there's a lot of misdirection and there's a lot of, he schemes guys open um, well when he's given an opportunity yep. to. The other thing that I look at is like, you, you, you go back to last year and you go, oh, well, the offense was, was, was really bad last year. And you go, and um, it's easy to point to the offensive line and say, well, that, you know, he there was a lot of struggle on the offensive line, but that was only half the problem. The Seahawks were one of the worst running teams in the NFL, um, and 
uh, Seattle's offense was designed around running the ball first, as you were saying. And so you have this inability to run the ball. It re- really hampered what everything. And so there was this adaptation that had to happen. That's um, right. Plus you also had, so you had this offensive line that started to pass block and an injured quarterback that did, lacked yep. his mobility. Um, you couldn't run the ball. There's it was amazing run. that we yeah. finished how we did. Yeah. And so in, to finish in the middle of the pack um, offensively is actually pretty crazy. So, I mean, so you got to, I all actually that, thought it was a pretty good coaching job by Bevel last year. So with all that said, give me the strongest arm argument you've got why Bevel should go. Uh, the reason, the one thing that I would look at is uh, look at what happened last year with Richard Sherman and the comments that he made. And it goes back to the Super Bowl where, you know, I think... I have no problem with the CX passing on second down um, in the Super Bowl. You know, it was ultimately intercepted. And I'm sorry if I'm triggering everyone's PTSD from that <laughs> game. But um, I think it was the wrong play. Uh, the wrong play, but a, but passing on that down I don't is have not any necessarily pro- a bad situation. No, because, that, because that, that leaves you two more uh, plays where you were run and pass and you make them... Uh, cover the whole field whereas if you run on that down and you don't get it then you have to pass twice Um, and they know what's coming they know it's going to be a pass so I I thought passing on that down was fine Um, but you I wouldn't have thrown it into the middle of the field I would have put Wilson like a a, or a corner fade to uh, to Jimmy Graham or something like that well, the Jimmy Graham wasn't well, on the team. Then, right, but right, they right, had right, right. Chris Matthews, who had had that big game. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The really tall guy. Um, you know, I would have done something like that to the edge where you're not likely to get an interception or put Wilson on the move with a run pass option. I would have done something like that because I think it's less likely to blow up in your face. Um, but, you know, that's a lot of hindsight, right? Um, uh, here, But the thing it comes down to is if. The defense, especially the defense, um, looks across uh, the line of scrimmage in practice and doesn't respect anything the offense does, and it stems because they don't believe in Bevel, then you've got a culture problem. And I think that would that would justify uh, Bevel being let go and replaced. If that's not the case, if it's just a, if it was just Richard Sherman and the rest of the defense doesn't have a problem with it, sorry fans, I know you're going to disagree with me, but I think he's got to stay. He's proven track record of success, especially like look at if you look at 2015 where the offensive line was terrible and the Seahawks still had one of the most efficient offenses in the NFL. Yes, uh, and that's what it comes down to for Pete is yeah. how efficient are you? I mean. Ideally, he wants to finish with the number one defense and yards allowed and scoring, mm-hmm. and he wants to finish with a top ten offense. He doesn't need to be number one. And he, he doesn't want to be number one because he yeah, wants he ball wants to control. be a, he wants to be about you know number eight, nine, ten, right in there where mm-hmm. that offense is is controlling the clock. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily need to be the top scoring offense, nope. but it needs to control the time. And yeah, that's that's Pete Carroll's deal. It needs to help the defense by controlling the ball, not turning it over, not giving the defense a short field, and being efficient. So um, that means getting first downs. Even if you don't score, yep. you change yep. the field. It means uh, your points per drive 
being um, fairly high. Not maybe you know. And that's why Russell Wilson is a perfect game. fit for the offense. He is, yeah, because he's he is super efficient. Look at his passer rating, and you know it's the highest. Right. I mean, he had a down year last and... year, but that you got to attribute that to injuries, unless he does it again this year. Mm-hmm. But I I think that he's a he's definitely got a bounce back year. Maybe not in yards, because likely, if uh, Wilson has a really good year, it's because he was able to get more efficient because the running game got better. Well, and the things they play off each other because the more efficient Wilson is, uh, the more the linebackers have to hold and watch for all of those routes and you know cover Jimmy Graham and whatever, and it opens up things for the running backs. And so it it's not just oh the running game is good, so therefore Wilson gets to be good. Um, sometimes the running game is good because Wilson is good. So they these things are all interrelated. So let's talk about your favorite coach, Tom Cable. Can we not? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm gonna. T- I'll talk about him for a little bit. Let me, so let me, he came. Okay, he you, came in 2011, mm-hmm. and he was uh, came out of uh, coaching uh, Oakland. Uh, he left uh, because of you know I think he was out of there because of that uh, the the punching the other guy incident. Yeah, he broke um, he broke the jaw of one of his assistant coaches. Yeah, and. Um, and and knowing Pete uh, Tom Cable, the way that he's been on the team, it's hard for me to see that. But the the, the pressure of a head coach is way dialed up compared to what he's doing now as an offensive line coach. So, you know, different people react in different situations. I'm not exactly sure what the, what the situation was there, but he ended up on the Seahawks, and he's done a decent job given the fact that he's. Uh, himself has put himself into um, situations and then the team uh, with John Schneider and some of the personnel decisions has put him in situations where he's had less than ideal personnel to work with and I think overall if you take all that into consideration he's not a bad coach Um, and then but you can look at scheme and you could say well is this the best scheme fit for the team and so forth you can definitely make an argument for yes, it is because you have to tie it in what we just talked about with Pete Carroll wanting ball control, running the ball, you know, wearing teams down to the fourth quarter and, and putting teams away. Um, then you take a look at the scheme with the zone blocking tendencies that they've got versus power um, blocking. And it, <sighs> While it's always it's not been the perfectly meshed fit with the personnel that we've had, somehow or another he's made it work to the point where we've finished you know top ten rushing you know quite a bit, and we're not going to be the best passing uh, uh, block team in the in the league under Tom Cable, but for run blocking, which is what Pete Carroll really wants to do, Tom Cable seems to be a, an okay fit. Yes, he is a he is a good coach at teaching run blocking. He runs a very complicated scheme um, with uh, the the zone blocking. And for our listeners who don't know what that means, uh, there's a lot of different ways to describe it. But the easiest way to think about it is zone blocking. Either the goal is to get the defensive lineman moving laterally, and then using. Uh, that you create, you make them spread out 
You, sp you spread the defensive line out, and therefore you generate holes. Rather than trying to push guys um, and generate holes by, by moving forward uh, as an offensive line, you're, you're getting them to move sideways and generating holes that way. Um, so that's that's kind of the different... It, an easy way that's to think a good of the that's a good yeah an easy way to think of the difference between power and zone and there's a lot to that and what that means and how you do that but i think that's a simplistic way of uh, of describing it and zone blocking works it works very well um when the seahawks are executing it well it's as a guy who watches a lot of offensive line and that, that's kind of my thing is is uh watching and you know scouting and, and offensive lines kind of my thing um when the zone blocking is working well, it's like football porn because it is so fun to just watch. Especially with Marshawn Lynch. Oh, Lynch Lynch made it made it made it fun too. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So there's uh, there's that. I, I, so I I don't have a problem with the scheme. I know that some of the guys. Here's the here's the part about Tom Cable which drives me crazy. Here it comes. Drew Nowak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had he's, he's loyal to he's loyal to a fault. He had um, two players in training camp who were significantly better on every snap in camp and in the preseason and whatever, um, and for reasons that no one has ever explained, he put started Drew Nowak at center for six games and let the offense and tanked that season and yeah and, and let the offense Nearly. Gr grind to a halt and it wasn't until pete carroll stepped in and was like okay this experiment has to end and they um you know switched that out and, and put patrick lewis in brought lemuel yeah. jean pierre um yeah. off the street you know brought him back cut noak uh, yeah. And then all, and then look what happened. So when you the go from starting, off. yeah, you go from starting center in the NFL to being cut. Yeah, you know you're bad. And and not and not being cut for off field reasons. Being cut because you're terrible, and no other team wanted to touch him. Like right. He, well, he, you came from the worst worst offensive line in football. Yeah. And they were the worst because of him. Because when they replaced him with uh, Patrick Lewis, who is not a special player in any right. Like we became middling. Uh, yeah. The offensive line, we became okay. And the offense itself took off. I mean, that was when Russell Wilson went on that tear oh, crazy. and had a record setting, you know, second half to that season. And it was, it all triggered when they got rid of Drew, Drew Nowak. And so you go, go through and look at what happened um, since Tom Cable has been here. You have, um, you know, J.R. Sweezy starting way too soon. He was yeah. not. He was not ready. Well, talk, but he talk forced to me him a little bit there. about that, Keith, uh, and help our, our listeners understand just what percentage of Tom Cable had in uh, personnel control as far as the offensive line is built. He has a hundred percent control as to who takes the field. So when it is. When he when Drew Nowak was out there starting at center, that was that's a one hundred percent on Tom Cable, and it took Pete Carroll stepping in and telling him that it was that he had to make a change before he did. Um, as far as okay, who's on? What players are on the roster? There is. Yeah, how do they draft? 
I mean, okay. that's that's the way that we acquire most of these guys. How does how do they how does Tom work with John? So Tom Cable is the primary scout involved in developing um, offensive line scouting reports and grades and getting them on our draft board. He is the primary scout. So one of the myths, Keith, is that the Seahawks just don't spend enough capital on their offensive line. And that's a myth. We they, we they, are the most drafted yeah. offensive line in the NFL. The Seahawks have more picks used on offensive linemen since Tom Cable came or since 2010. So, so um, then and more that, draft capital. So that's So that that's makes then the around. argument uh, we just don't do this very well on we, the offensive line. We we actually build a really amazing team except the offensive line. Yes. So and and, and maybe maybe Going into this year, they've solved it. We don't know that yet. We, we don't can't know. judge that. But no, up what, till this point, right now today, we suck at developing the offensive line. One of the things that people don't, I don't know if they know or if it's gotten out there or not, but if you look at the 2015 draft, the Seahawks drafted three offensive linemen, right? Effetti, uh, who is a guard tackle, um, Adiambo, who's a guard tackle, and Hunt, who's a center. Each one of those three guys was worked out one-on-one with Tom Cable. He went out and worked them out, coached them, made a call on them. Those were his guys. He picked them. Um, Adiambo couldn't get on the field, and George Fant, who was a basketball player, uh, was higher on the depth chart than him uh, at left tackle. Effetti was a nightmare i mean he just was terrible last season um and hunt is undersized doesn't really belong in the scheme but when he did get he he played in one game and actually played okay so um but those all three were cables guys and none of them appear to be guys that we and and who's the guy that we got in the second round this year and how was cable involved in that Posick is the guy that got involved this year, who's a guy who can play all you know, guard, center, or tackle. And Tom Cable was not involved whatsoever. He has he had not worked <laughs> him out, interviewed him, anything. So it is and, the opposite. And we of can the year safely before. say that this is probably the offensive line that we have the most promise for in the last you know three three years. years yeah. So um, even I though we haven't we haven't seen him, I mean, granted, we mm-hmm. haven't seen Posick on the field. I'm looking forward to it. Um, he sounds awesome. I think the offensive line competition this year is going to be really good. I think it's going to be fun. But we still haven't seen it, you know, yeah. and so, so far. So what's what's the deal? I mean, what, why is Tom Cable still on the team if we've gone through all of this stuff and the team has won in spite of Tom Cable? Is, could you say that? that. One, I mean, can you say that? I, I absolutely could say that because I think with a – with a different offensive line coach, especially one that still taught um, zone blocking, um, I think that the team could be the team could have been significantly better offensively. Um, and but it's it's not so much the coaching aspect; it's the evaluation. Yeah. Get Tom Cable out of scouting. Get him. Out of picking, just give him guys playing. to work with, but give, give him, don't give, don't him, give guys, him the decision making. Yeah, give him guys to work with and let him coach his system, and I think he'd be fine. 
Uh, and I think we starting to see we started to see that when they um, when Pete Carroll stepped in and got the Drew Nowak thing ended, um, and then yeah. this this yeah. year when when the Seahawks drafted guys, it was not. It, it, these aren't guys that were scouted by Cable. These were, he was not involved in the in the process. So when year. a coach like Tom Cable gets after, after he's been in the league this long, and with the team this long, and he starts getting uh, responsibilities pulled away a little bit, is the writing on the wall for Tom, or is he comfortable with something like that? I have no idea. I mean, I, I got to say that for him. Um, he is kind of a pariah around the league because of the stuff with that happened in Oakland, and he's got some, a pair of domestic violence um, issues in his in his past, and uh, he has this view that he wants to be a head coach, which I don't think will ever happen again. Um, but he did get some interest this year. Um, I think yeah. that he's in a situation yeah. in Seattle where he is trusted. He is liked he's respected and he will probably just allow the situation to you know yeah evolve. i think he's i think he's going to be with pete until yeah. pete leaves i yeah. really do i i don't think that there's a head coaching job out there for tom cable um but either. he's certainly uh, he certainly would be um looked at around the league as as a positive contributor on on a coaching staff but then again, you really have to take a look at what he's developed in Seattle with their line, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he'd he'd get hired anywhere. Yeah. See, what, what ideally, like I said, they they and I think they did this to this to some degree this year is they removed him from the scouting process, uh, which is good because that's not his thing, and he's going to have some oversight as far as the evaluation of the guys that are on the team and on the roster, which he needs, and that's good. And just let him teach, yeah. um, and let him do his thing. Uh, I really think if you look at if you look at the timetable uh, when when Seattle's offensive line went from good because it had a it had a good offensive line in 2013 it struggled at times because of injuries um, but when the when the when the guys were actually on the field and not hurt uh, that offensive line was very good um, but put together the the timetable the offensive line started to fall apart. Um, a lot of people point to some of the players leaving, but the person who I see as being the 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 the, the reason why it started to fall apart was when Chris Morgan left. He was the assistant offensive line coach, and he left to go to Atlanta and become their offensive line coach. So he was right. He took that promotion from assistant to offensive line coach, and look at what he's done in Atlanta. He took a, um, an offensive line that was viewed as the weakness of their offense and built it into a strength. And he's done it with mostly the same guys that were there. Um, and he's done it through good teaching and, you know, a lot of fundamentals and that kind of stuff. He, they've never really replaced him. They have Pat rule on the, um, there he's been with Pete since USC. Um, you know, the, it's just not a great, I don't see him as being. He's more of a, um, he's more of an off the field coach. He you know works with them as far as. Uh, I think they have Brendan Carroll there too. And they one do of Pete's sons. One but, of Pete's you know, sons. But I think that he floats around a little bit. He's not he, just offensive line. He kind of he does quite a bit. They just they they never really have replaced uh, Chris Morgan as, to give 
Tom Cable, a top uh, lieutenant, to coach those guys, and with how inexperienced they are and how raw some of these guys are, and with all of the George yeah. Fants and you know those kind of guys <laughs> with the unit, he needs help so that he can actually teach the these guys. Well, some I think this will, this will definitely be a season, Keith. That uh, that is that really show a lot. I think for Tom, because he finally has a line that's got a little bit of stability. They could see a starting five that is very similar to last year's starting five, a couple of position changes, but same guys. Um, And then they've got a really nice draft pick to work with there. Um, So this year, it looks like the, the, the offensive line might get solved. I mean, at least it's a 50, 50 proposition. At least that's the way I'm looking at it. It's not going to be worse than last year. Um, how about one more guy just to talk about really quick? We've got a lot of coaches on the staff. I would say if, if anybody's really interested, um, to take a look at Seahawks.com, they've got a list of, of the coaches and responsibilities and some of the background that they come in with. Um, but we talked briefly, uh, earlier about Chris Richard. I wanted to kind of come back to him just a little bit, uh, because I think this year's defense, uh, he's got a group that's at least as talented as he's ever had as a defensive coordinator and possibly uh, as talented as, I'm not going to say 2013 because that was literally historic, but maybe 2014, getting mm-hmm. back to the Super Bowl. I mean, he's got a Super Bowl defense. I he mean, that's, that's legit. Agreed. Um, here's the thing about Chris Richard. If, if the Seahawks have the number one scoring defense again, this might be his last year in Seattle. Well, he interviewed with the Bills in January to yeah. be their head coach. So he's he's now in in those sorts of discussions. Yep. He is okay. So he was the defensive backs coach. Um so, so this was a guy who was drafted by Holmgren. Yeah. Um, well, this is 11 seasons overall with Seattle, both yep. player and coach. Yeah. Drafted by Holmgren in the 3rd round as a cornerback and was absolutely terrible. Terrible. Like just But he's a smart guy. Completely wasted draft pick, but he's really smart. He knows the game. He's really good at teaching. He is one of my favorite guys to watch. He came from USC. Yep, he's one of my. So fa- he's a Pete Carroll guy from a long time, a he long is. time ago. He is one of my absolute favorite guys to watch, uh, coach, because he's really good and uh, gets in there and he's got the experience. He's been on the field. He knows how to do these things. And he is good at teaching guys. So if you're at training camp and you want a coach to watch, he's a great one. He's, um, he's a guy on the on the staff that I would say has the best personal relationship with players. Absolutely. Pete Carroll is Pete Carroll. And Pete Carroll's got an open door policy and he's approachable. But Chris Richard has got, he's, he's, he's got street cred. And uh, he's he's a really good teacher. You you cannot say enough about what Chris Richard did to develop Richard Sherman. Because if you watched Richard Sherman in training camp as a rookie, he, his technique was super sloppy. He really had no idea what he was doing. Um, He was out there. You could see the bravado. You could see it. But he was out of control. It was... um, (laughs) And his technique was bad. And by the time uh, he got on the field in week seven uh, as a starter, I think it was week seven as a rookie, it was all that was cleaned up. And he looked like a guy who... A seasoned pro. 
yeah, I, I, he looked like a guy who was going to be good. Now, he's still a little out of control, and there were some crazy personal fouls and stuff, if you remember. Um, but it was obvious that Richard Sherman was a talent, and it was not obvious of that in training camp. So he worked, Chris Richard worked some major magic technique-wise in, you know, 10 weeks between training, started training camp and, um, and when he, when yeah. Sherman got well, on the that field. Well, whole, that whole group. I mean, you add Browner into that whole situation, and then you've mm-hmm. got uh, Cam, Max, Chan- Cam, Cam Chancellor, Chancellor too. The defensive, the whole defensive back uh, group yeah. was un- unreal. Byron as, Maxwell, as it turned out, Byron Maxwell wasn't even well, a full time. Well, wasn't even was a, yeah. I would say he wasn't even a full time cornerback uh, in college. He was mostly a special teams guy, but. You know, Snyder saw the athleticism and the, the the length and the skills and and everything, and they brought him in and they buried him on the depth chart and said, "Here, Richard, go turn this guy into a cornerback," and yeah. <laughs> he turned him into a legit starter. Like, not maybe not he's not a, an elite guy. He's not on the the right. Sherman, Chris Harris, Revis level, but he is in that next tier down. He's a legit. Well, and he was guy. perfect for the the defense at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and then you, what do you, what do you don't like about Chris Richard? I mean, I compare him to like Quinn, and it's hard because he came after Quinn, and Quinn was quite honestly probably one of the best defensive coordinators in the league, mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden he was gone just as quick, and here comes Chris Richard doesn't really have any, you know, coach other than being a, a DB coach, he really didn't have a lot of experience and who is this guy and how is he going to run the scheme? And it turned out the scheme was going to kind of stay about the same because Pete Carroll, that's his scheme. And, um, but how do you think Chris has done as a defensive coordinator? He's done pretty good. I mean, he has, um, he's gotten too cute at times with his coverages and you see him do some crazy things. Like I, I mentioned earlier, like there was a play where you have, uh, Cliff Averill in coverage on Rob Grant- Gronkowski, and you're like, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's, t- let's take that play and tear it up. And well, and they had a lot of breakdowns and... last year, but you got to point to some injuries too. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, you you lose uh, you lose Earl Thomas in the back, and that's going to screw things up. One well, of the they things... just lost their communication center. I mean, yeah. and and Thomas was it. Yep, and and Richard also had to deal with uh, you know the Cam Chancellor holdout the year before, so they missed. All of that, um, you know, the all of training camp and the first two weeks with with Cam, who's their captain and one of their 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 leaders and that kind of stuff. And, you know, they were able to to make Kelsey McCray look like a guy that could come in and and be a um, a starter and and, and be successful. So he's had to mix and match. I think one of the things, like I said, there's there he tries to get a little too cute with his personnel. Um, the other part that has been a little bit frustrating is when Earl Thomas got hurt, there was no attempt to change the scheme. They basically threw Steve yeah. Carell out there and let him fail. Yeah. And to, to me, that was a mistake. You can't, you have to account for the fact that you've got a guy who's completely in over his head um, out there. And they needed to find a way to maybe pull Jeremy Lane off the field and get an extra safety so you have two safeties back and Cam up near the line of scrimmage type of thing um, and and go to more of that, like a bandit package and find ways yeah. to, to account for that. And they never did. They never even attempted to help Terrell out. And instead he just gave up 
big play after big play after big so play this, and was overmatched. So this year, this year looks like a completely different story. Chris Richard's store just got completely restocked, and yeah. he's like a kid in a candy store um, with with what he's got to work with this year. So it'll be interesting to see if um, if this defense returns to uh, what we've come to expect from a, mm-hmm. from a Pete Carroll defense, and I think it will. I mean, uh, McDowell uh, is a, is a great addition. Um, we've still got. Uh, everyone else up front. Um, we've got some guys returning from injury this year. We've got the, a lot the more defensive. Depth the the defensive, defensive backfield back. is completely loaded again um, mm-hmm. with with a better depth. You're right, and uh, boy, it should be. Yep. It should be good. It should be good. And if it is good, and I entirely expect it to be good, and Richard's going to generate a lot of interest by teams to go become an offensive or a head coach. And we'll talk about that on our beer episode in a couple weeks. Cool. I'm okay with that. Expectations. So there's a a million, there's a million coaches that we didn't get to and a bunch that I wanted, I wanted to talk about, but we spent so long on, on the big guys that we didn't get to them. Yeah. So maybe we can. Well, what's, what's, what's one guy just real quick who you wanted to, to highlight? Um, I wanted to highlight, um, since we're over time, we might as well go an extra we're couple. We're way minutes. over time. I wanted to highlight Michael uh, Barrow, the linebackers coach, because he came in in a really, really tough spot, and that was he had to replace Ken Norton Jr. Um, Ken Norton Jr. I, he was he was the guy before, like uh, besides Chris Richard, that I love watching coach because he was awesome. He was also the disciplinarian on the team. He was the guy who enforced curfew um during training camp he was just the energy uh from the coaches in in camp and in practice i mean he was a huge part of everything but the seahawks decided to promote chris richard because of what he had done with that secondary into the defensive coordinator job and not ken norton jr and so Ken Norton Jr. left went to, and went to Oakland and became their defensive coordinator. Um, and it was a, it was one of those weird situations where you were gonna you had to make a choice. The players, especially the the star players, which were Cam and Richard and Earl, desperately wanted it to be Chris Richard. So it became Chris Richard got the job, but that meant losing Ken Norton Jr. And yep. so when he left. They had to bring someone in, and they brought in Michael Barrow, and they also brought in Lofa Tatupu. Yeah, to well, be... and they had Bobby Wagner. I mean, arguably the most intelligent middle linebacker in the game. Yeah. You know? So that's helpful. Yep. So, so they, like I said, they brought in Tatupu, and they brought in Barrow, um, and, and that's a situation where you're like, you're. It's like it's like when you're the quarterback who follows. Um, mm a Hall of Famer who retires, right? It doesn't right. matter. Whoever it follows does, Wilson is going to, it's just not going to be everyone. Good. Everyone's <laughs> going to, everyone's going to hate him no matter how good he is. Right. Or it's, you know, if you were the, if you were, um, greasy after John Elway retired or, you know, that, yeah. that kind of, it doesn't matter how well you play. You're, you're in, in a situation. Well, to the, to the players and to those of us that, um, are around the team and, and, and get to see practice all the time. Replacing Ken Norton Jr., those were huge shoes to fill. And Barrow came in, and he was more soft-spoken, and he really let the guys come to him 
rather than forcing himself on the situation. Yeah. Very masterful leadership talent uh, displayed and has cemented himself in as one of the key coaches and one of the guys that everyone turns to. And he really has filled those shoes very well. He fills them in a different way, but it was such so masterfully done as far as a so did human he interaction work, aspect. Did he work with... Um... Oh my gosh, I lost his name. Head coach at Atlanta. Was he there with him in in uh, college? Uh yes, he was. Um he was he was the linebackers coach uh at Miami with Dan Quinn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and that was part of the reason why the Seahawks were interested in him is because because of Quinn, right? So they there was a, there was kind of a relationship they knew he was on their their radar as guys, and so um, he also played thirteen years as an NFL linebacker. So he had an he's got those chops as a career. So they they brought him in. Yeah. He has, um, you know, seven years of coaching experience um, in the college ranks. So they brought him in, and it, it, it's worked really well. The team has has responded to him well. He's been a very good fit. Um, and so I'm pretty happy, you know, to watch that. That was just one of those one of those things where you're kind of watching it, wondering what was going to happen, and then it turned out really good. So, And it just goes back to one of the things we talked about very early in this podcast, and that's Pete Carroll's ability to assemble a staff. You know, he lost Gus Bradley. He found Dan Quinn. He um, lost Ken Norton Jr. He found Michael Barrow. He had um, Sherman Smith retire uh, this year, and... They brought in Chad Morton, and it's just, it's one of those things where you, they've been able to reload the coaching staff, because they've had a yeah. lot of guys go, because they've already had two uh, two coordinators go become head coaches, and when that happens, they take guys with them, so yep. they've had to reload the coaching staff this year. They just lost... Um, uh, I just drew a blank all of a sudden. Um, I can picture him. Um, the guy who became a a minister left left coaching to become a minister. Um, oh yeah. Oh, I forgot. Yep. I'm totally running a blank on that one too. Rocky Sato. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, and he was with uh, Pete for a long time. Yeah, he was actually Pete's defensive coordinator in at USC. Came with, but got demoted. Um, so they could keep Gus Bradley, didn't get promoted back to that job so they could keep, um, or so they could get Dan Quinn, didn't get promoted again so they could keep <laughs> Chris Richard. And so there's a lot of that going on, and Pete had to kind of manage that situation. But Seda was more of a big-picture guy, less of a, the fine detail, which is what you really want out of a defensive coordinator, is you want someone who can who's really good at, at really detail-oriented and, and Rocky Sato's talents are more, you know, big picture. So they kept him in jobs where he was, um, where his skill set was best suited. And, you know, he, at one point, he, at the end, was actually an assistant head coach. And, and so he was, but he was doing those big picture kind of Pete Carroll head coaching kind of things. Um, and then finally decided that he wanted, he just, needed yep. a life change and decided you know yep. what he's his uh faith was huge in his life and always had been and he just was going to go that route so he left but that also 
leaves a void because you have all this big picture stuff that he did for Pete, all of this like oversight of the defense. Um, But Pete, it's just like he develops talent on the field. Pete is really good at developing talent in his coaching staff and allowing guys to be themselves and to come in and establish themselves and promote from within. If you go through the the coaching staff uh, um, syllabus, on Seahawks.com, you'll see that a lot of those coaches have had multiple positions mm-hmm. um, within uh, the team yep. um, and just kind of advanced through the organization. And that's a tribute to Pete Carroll. I mean, he's really good at that. Yeah. Probably one of the, the best. The, one of the other things that, that Pete Carroll does that you don't see from other teams is he will actively make calls to get his assistants promotions outside of the organization. If he can't... Yeah. If he can't keep a guy, or you know what I mean, like if if he's got a guy like um, Gus Bradley, who wants to become a head coach, you know what? He made calls, and it wasn't just people coming to the Seahawks and saying, "Hey, we'd like to interview." There was Pete going, "You know what? You should go interview this guy. He is an up and coming coach, and yep. you're gonna like him." And he actively works to get his guys' promotions outside, and then he bring. He brings other guys in, and, and uh, what it is is it's the thing is when he by doing that, other coaches look at him and go, yeah, "I want to work for Pete because yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna learn a lot, but he's also gonna do that for me. He's gonna help me advance my career. He's gonna make give me opportunities to show that I can become a coordinator or later become a head coach, and he's gonna help me do that. And uh, so that's how he was able to recruit guys like Barrow. And uh, like Dan Quinn and get them brought into the system because guys want to coach for Pete because they want that opportunity. And it's a different way of managing people and managing your organization than you see with other teams because a lot of other teams, they get these guys, they train them, they know they're good and they want to hoard them because they know that keeping them around is the best thing for their organization. Um Pete's okay with going, nope, we love you, you're amazing, go be a head coach, go expand the coaching tree, I will find someone else. And That's awesome. And that just, it just breeds a positive attitude, it breeds guys that want to be here, even guys that aren't here that want to come in. That's great. Well, I'm going to leave it right there, because yeah, you said good. it better than, yeah, you said it really good. So, hope you enjoyed the show today, fans, it was awesome, we went a little long, so we're going to wrap it up and uh, we'll be back next week and um, look for us at SeahawksPlaybook.com. You can find us on Twitter at MyersNFL and at NWSeahawk. And uh, yeah, that's it. And at, Hot Play- at Hawks Playbook for uh, the show's official Twitter feed. Yeah, 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 yeah. So awesome. So thanks uh, for uh, for being here again, Keith. And until next time, Hawks fans, we'll, we'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Hawks Playbook Podcast is brought to you by the Fan Sided Network and 12thManRising.com. Find our podcast on the website or subscribe on iTunes. You can find both Bill and Keith on Twitter. Bill is at NWC Hawk and Keith is at Myers NFL.